Well, today is the fourth season of Lent. Uh, we do not have a children's sermon today, but I want to encourage you to stand up and greet one another and say hello. Good morning. We are the Love Family. My name is Nathan. This is my wife, Jen. And then we have Kaylin, Eli, Malachi, and Silas. And we're up here to light the black candle representing emptiness for the fourth season of Lent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but... Do not answer. By night I am not silent, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by the men and despised by all people. All who see me mock me. The hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. Since he delights him, do not be far from me, for the trouble is near me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured like I'm poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a postard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. I have pierced my hands and my feet. I have I can count all my bones. People stare at stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among the cast, lots of lots for my clothing, but you, O oh Lord, but not far off. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congreg congre congregation, I will praise you. For has not despised or dis dis um, disdained to suffering of the afflicted um, one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help all all um ends of the earth will remember the turn of the lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the lord he rules over the um the nations posterity will serve him future generations will be told about the lord they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn 
for he has done it. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's very good to applause for them. Let's do that again. They did better than many of you adults would have done. <laughs> I'd like to call attention, your attention to a couple of things in the bulletin. It's on the back. One is uh, next week, a week from today, next Sunday, we're having a new inquirers class. If you're interested in learning more about our church, how we function, why we do the things we do, what makes us crazy like we are, this is a great class to come to. It's also an entry point if you want to become a member of the church. You don't have to by coming to the class. You can simply come and learn. But lunch will be provided. So if you'd like to attend that, let me know or just let the office know. Send us an email or something and we'll know how much food to get. We'd love to have you there. The second one is two weeks from today, uh, Sunday, March 29th. We're having a baptism Sunday. If you'd like to be baptized, uh, talk to one of us. Talk to one of the pastors, one of the elders. Uh, send an email to the church. We'll get in contact with you and we'll make it happen. Okay. Um, let me start by saying thank you for all of your prayers. I've been asked a thousand questions this morning, so let me put some of the things to rest. I did make it back safely. I'm here, in case you were wondering. That's, uh, the airport was shut down for those of you that followed international news. The, uh, they had a Turkish airplane crash on the runway. Nobody died. And so the Kathmandu airport was closed down for about four or five days. And, uh, you know, you don't know what's going to happen when you go on any any trip, but it especially gets wild and adventuresome when you go to a third world country. You just don't know how it's going to work out because the guy that I was supposed to uh, co-teach with, he was landed at Bombay at the same time that the plane crashed in Kathmandu. So British Air told him, uh, the airport is closed down and uh, there's no chance of you getting to Kathmandu. It'll be closed for several days. So they just put him on a plane and flew him back home. So I got to do the whole thing by myself which is fine. I don't mind that. And um, <clears throat> Kathmandu is a small uh, airport. It's, very, it's a pretty dangerous. It's one of the more dangerous airports in the world to land. And they don't have the equipment to get a big jet off the runway. And so they had to wait and fly in the equipment from um, India, along with part of the Indian Army, to get it off. So it took about four or five days. It was pretty interesting. When I left, they cleared the runway and opened the airport about two days before I left because there was a question about whether I was going to get back out. And uh, they had about 45,000 passengers to, to get rid of that were stuck there at the airport. So the airport was an absolute zoo, standing room only. So about two hour and a half to two hours before my flight, um, a lady comes through, and she's announcing the flight, and she's looking for Mr. Howard. Well, that's me. <laughs> so I said, yeah. And she goes, you must come. You must come. The plane is leaving. The flight doesn't leave for two hours. And she says, we're leaving early. Okay. So... <laughs> She took me through security. By the time we got through security, and it was, took about an hour, hour and 15 minutes to get through all that. I was the last one on the plane, and uh, we left 45 minutes early. <laughs> Never seen that. Welcome to a third world airport. They were just sending every plane and filling them, trying to get them out as fast as they could. I, I hope everybody that had a ticket made it. 
Um, so by God's grace, I made it back home. Thank you. Conference went very well. Enjoyed a lot of time with the students and the uh, pastors. Uh, talked about a lot of things that they had not talked about before in their culture. So I'm very grateful. They asked me to pass on to you their gratitude for uh, sending me. And because um, they just have a hard time getting teaching over there. And so it was really good. So thank you. Okay, we're celebrating the fourth Sunday of Lent. You may remember the whole season of Lent is designed to prepare us as a congregation to move toward the cross. That's really what we're doing. Every Sunday, we're moving closer and closer to the crucifixion and then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so we've designed this time to help us to reflect more about what, what happened with Jesus and who is he. So as we move toward the cross, we are also learning about Jesus along the way. We're looking at the seven I am statements in John where Jesus basically claimed the deity. So you may remember in Exodus 3, God said his name was I am. That's an English translation, I am. So Jesus took that and he seven times said, I am something. So we first of all started with John 6, I am the bread of life. There we have the idea of nourishment, that our true nourishment comes from the Lord. Um, and then we went to I am the light of the world in John 8. There we had the idea of kind of clarity and that true enlightenment and help making sense of the world around us actually comes from serving the Lord. It's interesting on the flight back, uh, I was sitting next to, you never know who the Lord's going to put you next to. It's always a, an adventure. Anytime you go to the rural country, it's an adventure. And so on the way back, I'm sitting next to a man who, come to find out, he's a tenured professor of biology at the University of Berlin, a German man. Had a great, great eight or ten hours of conversation with him. And um, he specializes in uh, fresh water, creating fresh water. And he was puzzled. He was very intrigued when he found out what I did, you know, that, uh, that I go over and teach Christianity because he's not, Christianity is just not part of his life. So he, um, he was puzzled over how he goes into foreign countries, third world countries, and he and his team and other professors, and they create fresh water opportunities. He was bewildered why they wouldn't use the fresh water. He was startled by that. And he said, I can't make sense of that. Do you have any thoughts? And I said, yeah, I actually have a lot. And I said, it's a religious problem. It's not a science problem. If you understand Hinduism and the whole concept of karma, by the way, one day I think it'd be great to have a conversation about how Christianity compares with Buddhism and Hinduism and the other religions. We'll get there. But if you understand uh, karma in uh, Hindu theology, then you'll understand that people won't drink, many of them in the lower caste won't drink the water because of what that might do to their reincarnation into the next caste. And he said, oh my. He said, I need you to come with me so you can change their minds so they'll enjoy the water that we <laughs> produce for them. And he, he got it that Christianity was different. And we talked that through and had a, just a fantastic conversation. That's enlightenment. That's coming to an awareness of the world around us and making sense of it. And Christianity brings that to the table. And so that was good. And that's what's behind the idea of the light of the world. While we were in that section, we also talked about Jesus' statement, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So he talks about thirst and he talks about the bread of life, hunger. And he talks about how uh, with the, Mer the Samaritan woman, that this water produces this wellspring of water internally that quenches thirst. And it's really a paradox because as it's quenching thirst, it's creating thirst. 
as you draw near to the Lord, you're hungry for more or thirsty for more, depending on which metaphor you use. Then last week, Mark talked about being the door of the sheep. John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. And he, I think he spent some time looking at backgrounds of shepherding and what that was all about and why that metaphor works. So today, just four verses later, we're talking about Jesus' statement in John 10, 11, and 14. says it twice, I am the good shepherd. Now, let me remind you that all of this, um, except for the very first I am statement, all of these I am statements occur during the Festival of Tabernacles. So we're during that eight-day period, and uh, shortly thereafter, where Jesus is having discussions with the Jewish leadership and the people that are out the temple. The uh, Festival of Tabernacles was one of the three festivals where they all, all of Israel gathered from wherever they were around the world. They came together in Jerusalem to celebrate. So this, the city would have been absolutely overflowing and packed, a million, million and a half people, and Jerusalem is just not that big. This is this time, this, this particular festival, when the people would move out of their homes and they would build temporary shelters. We call them booths or tabernacles. You could think of it in terms of a tent. So it's almost like a big camping party, if you will. So they'd move into these big tents or these tents and they'd live there for eight days. They were honoring and celebrating the Lord's faithfulness when he took the Israelites through the 40 years of wandering because they lived in tents. And so they did that, and it was a time of great celebration, lots of music, lots of dancing, lots of things going on during these eight days. You may remember there were two parts to this festival, two different ceremonies. One was the light ceremony, one was the water ceremony. Every morning, the priest and a bunch of the people would, a procession would head down to the Pool of Siloam, dip a pitcher with water, come back to the temple, and they would throw the water out at the base of the altar, honoring and remembering the Lord's care for them in the desert. They're in the desert. So he had to provide water continuously for a whole nation. So the water ceremony was designed to remember the Lord's faithfulness in taking care of them. During that period of time, they would sing songs, the Psalms as they're going down and coming back together in the nation. Then the second ceremony was in the temple. They would light the candles, the seven candles, menorah candles, to symbolize God's constant watch over them because during the 40 years, they were never in darkness. During the day, they had the sun and they had the pillar of cloud and at nighttime, it became a pillar of fire. So they always had light to remind them that God was ever present, watching over them, protecting them, leading them. They didn't have to worry about any marauding armies or anything like that. So the candles were designed to uh, commemorate God's faithfulness to be ever-present with them. On the eighth day is when Jesus stood up and said, I, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So that's kind of the background. Remember that? Then when they lit the candles, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And um, so that has the idea of just clarity, enlightenment. We can make sense of the world around us. So we're in the middle of this Feast of Tabernacles, and we're just coming to the end of it in John 10. So in John 10, we come to the very end of this whole section that is occurring during this festival time. All right, let me say a little bit about the background to the idea of the Good Shepherd. I know Mark talked to you a little bit last week about it. There was a tradition of presenting the unfaithful leaders of Israel as bad shepherds. That was a very consistent pattern through the Old Testament. They were bad shepherds. They consistently or they uh, constantly... uh, Turn the flock over, if you will, to wolves. That's how it's described. Let me read to you just one example. 
Jeremiah 31. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23. So you can just capture a sense. This is common language found in several passages. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil that you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and they will increase in number. I will place shepherds over them, shepherds who will tend them, take care of them. They will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, um, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Those are key words that occur consistently in these messianic prophecies. A king who will do what is just and right. Don't we wish we had that? Today? I just wish we did. You've heard me say, I don't care which party's in office. I just want somebody that's just and right to do it. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which we will, he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So there was this tradition all the way through the Old Testament of calling the unfaithful leaders of Israel bad shepherds. They turned the flock over. They let him go. And the wolves would come in and destroy them. In contrast, alongside of this thread, God is repeatedly spoken of as the shepherd, the true shepherd of the people. In fact, I think Mark read Ezekiel 34 last week, and that same imagery is present there. As the, as the Old Testament begins to unfold, what happens is you have the monarchy, David is a king, and then all of the successors. And then eventually they have sinned and turned away from the Lord so much that uh, the monarchy is dissolved. It goes away. The nations cease to exist as a nation. Remember, the nation of Israel is divided between the northern and southern kingdom, and then eventually they cease to exist. So as the monarchy disappears, the prophets begin to speak of a future figure in the line of David, a future Davidic figure, a Messiah, who would shepherd his people. And they called him the shepherd. So... Now back to the story of the Feast of Tabernacles here in John 10. That's kind of the background to the imagery of shepherd. Now let's see what happens with this imagery here in John. The story of the Feast of Tabernacles in John is leading to the grand conclusion that Jesus is this future Davidic figure, this king, this shepherd, if you will. He's going to be called the true or the good shepherd. Now, as we work our way through this, we looked at several passages. I want to go back through briefly and, and give you several different lines of thought that are occurring at the same time in this story. Several things are happening while he's interacting with the people and he's interacting with the Jewish leadership. And it all comes together with Jesus' final statements. First of all, Jesus claims to be the one sent from God. And thus, um, he's the true revealer of this one true living God. In, in John 7, right at the beginning of the feast, uh, the feast starts around, well, the beginning of 7, but in verse 16, Jesus is talking. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God 
or whether I speak on my own. So he, he begins to claim that he is the one sent from God and thus he's the true revealer of this one true living God. Now, that's not what they would have gotten. That's not the idea they would have had from these passages of a shepherd that's coming. So he's already starting to create conflict and tension. I'm the one that's going to reveal the true God to you. Now think about that, how that would sound in the midst of a bunch of uh, Jewish leadership. Priests, scribes, teachers of the law, Sanhedrin. Oh yeah, right. You're the one that's going to reveal God to us. Uh-huh. Sure. We've been serving God longer than you have. We've been trained. We know how this works. So he begins to reveal, to claim to be the one sent from God. And so what happens is uh, he's the revealer and begins to create conflict. He then presents himself as a living water, verse 37 to 39. We talked about that, creating that thirst, if you will, that is quenched. He then goes on and claims to be the light of the world in John 8, John 8, 12. And then he does, we didn't talk about this, but then he demonstrates a miracle, which is almost all of John 9, the whole story of John 9. He demonstrates a miracle to illustrate what this means when he says, I am the light of the world. He takes a blind man and he heals him. That is a prop, if you will. He specifically used the miracle right at that time because he said, I'm the light of the world. Let me show you what I mean by this. Here's a blind man. Now he can see. So he gives light to the blind man who has never been able to see before. And that becomes a picture of what happens when someone turns to Christ. You begin to make sense of the world around you. You begin to grow in the ways that you're created to grow. You start loving people better. You start, you start enjoying being generous. You care more for the people that are mistreated, downtrodden, oppressed, marginalized. Those are things that we all begin to become more sensitive to and aware of. And so the church then begins, as Christians, we begin to take steps to ameliorate, to fix some of that, and to start welcoming these people into our midst where they wouldn't have been welcomed before. So that's what happens when a person receives sight who was blind previously. Well, then throughout this whole story, the question begins to get raised of who is this man? Who is he? I mean, it makes sense. Jesus just appears on the scene and starts saying, using this language that is startling. And so people start scratching their heads. Some get frustrated. Some get angry. Some start questioning. Some start getting confused. Some start, they don't know what to do with him. So just listen to some of these passages in chapter 7, for example, verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? So it was common knowledge on the street, apparently, that the, that the leadership was out to kill Jesus. So, there, so Jesus had just been teaching, and they said, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word. Have the authorities concluded that he's the Messiah? So they're wondering what the authorities think about it. Then you move on over to, chapter, uh, to verse 40. And um, again, I'm jumping into the middle. On hearing his word, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does anything good come out of Galilee? Doesn't the scriptures tell us that the Messiah will come from David's line, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So how could he come from Galilee? So you can see they're scratching their heads, trying to connect the dots between the Old Testament and what Jesus is saying. When you get to chapter 8, verse 25, um, they ask him, the Jewish leadership, he just got done saying, you are from below, I am from above. You are not of this world. I mean, uh, yeah, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Who are you, they ask. <laughs> Remember that during this time, it was very common for the leadership, the way they 
the way they built their credibility and their authority was to quote somebody before them that was recognized. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, or the teacher so-and-so says this. Jesus didn't use any of that language. He just simply said, here's the truth. That's why the scripture said he spoke with authority, and they're all scratching their heads going, who is this guy? So the leadership asked, they look at him and say, who are you? They're trying to figure it out. In verse 48, as you keep moving through, they, uh, they get a little more incensed each step of the way, and they begin to change their thinking. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Why would they claim Jesus is a Samaritan, to be a Samaritan? Samaritans were half Jewish, okay? They were half Jewish. That's why the Jews had trouble with the Samaritans. They weren't fully full-blood Jews. And so they knew that, that there was a big question mark around Jesus' father because they knew Joseph wasn't. So you have these snide comments woven throughout there. At least we know who our father is. So Jesus appears to be illegitimate. So they claim he's a Samaritan. So aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Wow. They're forming thoughts, aren't they? By the time you get to verse 53, they claimed, we, verse 52, they claimed, we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Okay, there may be sarcasm built into this, but they're still wrestling through who is this man. He's making these conflicting statements, and it's getting them a little upset. By the time you get over to chapter 9, um, I'll come back to that in just a minute. Throughout the story of the blind man, which is all of chapter 9, there's a, uh, there's a contrast between the blind man who doesn't know who Jesus is and the Jewish leadership who arrogantly claim to have figured him out. Okay? So you have the blind man who's very humble. I don't know who this guy is. And then you have the Jewish leadership saying, yeah, we got it figured out. We know who he is. So, the man born blind continually claims that he doesn't know who it was that healed him. For example, in chapter 9, verse 12, they, uh, the leadership, they've called him on the carpet because he was healed on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. So, they're taking him to task. And, uh, and he says, they say to him, where is this man? He said, I don't know. Remember, he was just blind seconds ago, minutes ago. And all of a sudden, he can see. I don't even know if he knows what Jesus looked like. All right? That's good. The passage doesn't tell us. Well, where is he? He said, I have no idea where he is. And then a little bit later in verse 25, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth because we know this man is a sinner and replied, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I have no idea. All I know is I was blind. Now I can see. That's a pretty amazing statement. That's all I know. So throughout the whole passage, he doesn't know who Jesus is. In contrast, the Jewish leadership, or what John calls the Jews here, they are confident in their belief that they understand Jesus. In verse 24, I just read this. We know that this man is a sinner. They're making a positive assertion. We know with confidence this man is a sinner. Or verse 29, um, they were hurling insults at this man. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. We don't know his pedigree. We don't know his background. We don't know his training. And you're challenging us. Their arrogance shines in their final concluding statement to the blind man in verse 34. So in verse 30, the, 
The man answered them, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. They just said he was a sinner. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now listen to their, their final statement of arrogance. You were steeped in sin at birth, and you lecture us, how dare you? And they threw him out of the temple. See the culmination of the story? Their arrogance has now risen to the level where they're saying, we know the truth, you don't. Jesus is demon-possessed. They are content with their knowledge. They have become blind. The blind man doesn't know, and he now he sees. You see the paradox? You see the transfer that's going on? They are content with their knowledge. They are the blind ones in the story. Jesus had just said, I am the light of the world. And he did this miracle to illustrate what he meant by that. Jesus goes on to say that this is what brought about judgment upon them. And if they had only admitted their blindness, then they, he, they would have found Jesus. Here's the end of that story um, with the blind man. Jesus heard that they had thrown this man out. And when he found them, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Can I picture the scene? He goes up to the blind man and he's saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? Pharisees are all standing around listening. Jewish leadership is all here. The story will make that clear in just a second. Jesus wasn't afraid. He didn't lack courage. I love it. Do you believe in the Son of Man? So the man said, well, who is he, sir? That I, uh, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Isn't that great? You've seen him. You just didn't know it. You didn't recognize the Lord because you didn't know who he was, but now you know who he is. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now the leadership is standing there. So the Pharisees who were with him and heard this, they asked, what? Are we blind too? They got the message. They recognized they were being indicted by Jesus. Jesus said, and listen to these words because they relate to all of us. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. Never said a word to the blind man about his sin. The woman caught in adultery, which we didn't go over in John 8, just the chapter before. He just tells her, go and sin no more. Never confronts her for her sin. Remember, because they came up and said, we caught this woman in adultery. And the law says to Stoner, what do you say? My first question is, where's the man? Because the man's supposed to be executed as well <laughs> under the law. And Jesus said, let, who, let, the one of, let those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. And they all walked away. And he said, where are your accusers? She said, they've gone. And he said, go and sin no more. That's the way he approached all the sinners in the Bible. That's the way he approached all of them. The harlots, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to eat dinner with you today. Let me tell you the truth, Zacchaeus says. Because I understand now, I'm going to give back four times what I collected to all the people I cheated. And Jesus said, salvation's come to this house. He didn't say, you sinner. 
If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your sin remains. This is a very, very important verse. It affects all of us. Where are you? Are you arrogant in your thoughts about truth and Christianity? Do you claim that you can see? In other words, you're accountable if that's the case. Ignorance is a good thing. If they had admitted their blindness, they would have found Jesus. So the story culminates with Jesus fulfilling the traditional Jewish messianic expectation. He is the good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. That's what the hired help does. Then the wolf attacks and the flock is scattered. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The implication is that's not Jesus. So Jesus begins to distinguish himself now from the Jewish leadership. Because when he says, I am the good sheep, the good shepherd, what's the implication? They are the bad ones. That's the implication. The problem is that he doesn't fit the model of the expected shepherd that's coming. Because he says he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. This is not present in any of the earlier texts in the Old Testament on the, on the shepherd. Shepherd's not talked about laying down his life. This good shepherd is now to be a gift to us in a very unexpected way. He's going to protect us like a true shepherd should. As sheep, our shepherd will lay down his life for us. In other words, we are the most important thing to Jesus. You get it? Are those good words or not? It's because he owns the sheep. Then he goes on to identify the core of what it means to be a shepherd. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. He says again, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He now clarifies what it means to know him and to not know him. Because he knows his own sheep. Every good shepherd would know their sheep and the sheep would recognize the voice of the shepherd. Behind this startling idea, which is new, is the foundational, a more deeper idea that Jesus knows the Father and the Father knows him. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is the very critical part of this thing because this is demonstrating an intimacy with God not found anywhere else. It's a profound intimacy. The reason why he can be our shepherd is because of his intimacy with the Father. Here's how I envision it. The Father and the Son are having a conversation. And they look at each other and said, we created these people. We know them. We own them. I'll go down and take care of them. So this intimacy with the Father becomes the very, the very core of Jesus coming to us. No one has seen God at any time. We're beginning to get a glimpse of what Jesus meant when he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is God himself, it says in the text, he has revealed him. So that intimacy between Jesus and the Father now becomes available to us. And we see it. And we see it in the love that's demonstrated 
Through Jesus, we experience this one true living God. He's come back for us. In verse 16, he goes on, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Wow, there's a brand new idea out of nowhere. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. The reason my father loves me is because I sacrifice for you, only to take it up again. No one takes it away from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. These other sheep reveal God's plan all along was to reach the entire world. By the way, this is us. We are these other sheep. Most of us in here are not Jewish by ethnic descent. He's talking about us. Once again, it's rooted in Jesus' love for his creation. He's willing to lay down his life, do whatever it takes for us. There's no greater sacrifice than to give your life. None. The relationship between Jesus and his father conclude this entire story of the Festival of Tabernacles and give us a sense of what it means for God to protect us. It's in the form of his son. In the Exodus, we see it through the giving of water and the pillar of light and the pillar of cloud. And where it concludes is we see it now in his son. He's the one that brings us clarity, enlightenment, understanding. He's the one that protects us, lays down his life for us. So all of those stories in the Bible all point to this one moment right here where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The father's love is shown to be rooted in a deep respect for the son's willingness to die. And Jesus makes it very clear that this was not forced upon me. I had the authority to decide, and I made the choice. So the father and the son are having the conversation. We created these people. And Jesus says, I'll go down and lay my life down for them. And Jesus, and then God looks at him, I think, and just smiles. And there, there comes that overflowing love right then for the son. See the intimacy built in here between the father and the son? That's what we access when we turn to Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. <clears throat> Do you recognize that voice? Are you content with the knowledge that you have about Jesus? Do you claim to know or are you willing to admit your own blindness? To this day, I still don't know why my friend wasn't able to come and co-teach the other half of everything I did. I don't know. All I know is I stepped up and did it. Maybe God had something that I was going to say that makes sense. I don't know. Who knows? I'm blind. That's the reality of it. I don't have a clue. How much of our lives do we live where we're comfortable with that ambiguity, that comfortable with that confusion, where we're comfortable saying, I'm not sure. I don't know why God is doing this in my life. I'm not going to try to figure it out because I can't, and I'm not going to get angry because I have faith. That's what the blind man was. That's when you meet Jesus at that point. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for the, the behind-the-scenes look at the deep and passionate love you and the Father share. 
that then we get to enjoy. We get to, we get to taste. We get to feel it. Thank you. Thank you for protecting us, for turning, uh, turning to us in love, for laying down your life for us, for watching over us. Thank you for that. Father, we uh, pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and receive the offering. By the way, the offering is one of those places where you can seek the Lord's voice. I hope you never give out of guilt, shame, none of those reasons. We're never going to say that because we don't believe it. And I don't want you to give that away either. Just pray and ask the Lord. Listen to his voice and see what he says. In the meantime, thank you for your generosity. You're the ones that make it possible for all this. Thanks for giving. I'd like to invite those who are going to serve us communion and pray to come on forward and prepare us for this. You know, communion is, um, it is a celebration of the great shepherd who laid down his life for us. And I want you to reflect on that just for a moment. I realize that some of you, um, some of you may not have ever had anybody in your, your life, your family, that was willing to put you first. I know some of you come from very healthy families where your parents would have died for you. But I know that not all of you did. I get that. But one thing we can all say with certainty is we have at least one person who is willing to put us first and sacrifice for us. Every one of us has at least one. And that's what communion is all about. It's about this great shepherd who was willing to lay down his life. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. 
I laid down my life for you. You do have somebody. Do this in remembrance of me. By the way, let me say that we listen to your comments and we are serving bread. If, uh, if gluten-free is important to you, then come to either one of these stations right here and we have gluten-free as well. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Yes, it is about the death of Christ. He laid down his life for the sheep and he's willing to continue to do that. He's willing to continue to put you first. No other religion has a God that puts its people first. None. There's nothing out there in the world like it. We are unique. We have a God who puts us first. We have a shepherd who really puts us first as a higher priority all the time. He serves us. He loves us. He dies for us. That's our confession. If you want to join us in that confession, then we invite you to come forward and receive communion. When you come, stop and pray with one of us up here, several of us up here. We love to pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful news, Lord, that each one of us, even if we have no one on the earth, each one of us has someone willing to die for us, a Savior, a shepherd. Thanks for giving us a chance to celebrate this together as a church and to openly confess to you that we believe. We believe in your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So come forward and receive communion.
Listen to this psalm again, so familiar to us, and think of Jesus, because this is a story about Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leaves me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Jesus. He's the shepherd. As you go out this week, take time to listen to his voice. Just pick two or three times up to you when and just listen to his voice it's calming it's soothing and when you're with your friends who are in turmoil help them to see his voice as well have a great week go in peace mm-hmm.